Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello and welcome to episode 4-414 of the Run Run Live podcast. And I was trying to get this one early this week because this weekend is the Leadville 100 trail race, the race across the sky. So I've already flown out to Pace Eric over this weekend. It's Friday morning about, I don't know, 5 o'clock uh, local time, so 7 o'clock my time back in Boston. You can hear it in my voice. You can hear the altitude in my voice. I always feel a bit uh, a bit hungover, a bit concussed at altitude, but we'll see how that goes because it's going to get worse, you know? So I'm sitting in Breckenridge and recording for you. All right. So truly, this has all the earmarks of an adventure with a capital A. This is the thing I really dig about longer endurance events, right? Whether a marathon or a multi-day relay or an ultra, you really have no idea what's going to happen when you tow the line. And there is that middle road, the one everybody's planning for, or more appropriately guessing at, that travels a clean but relatively uninteresting path where everything stays within expectations, everything goes right, that middle road where nothing weird or memorable happens. You just run your miles and you bask in the warm glow of an expected job well done. You trained, you showed up, you ran, you finished. You wipe your hands, note the effort in your log, check that box and move on. That is the less interesting path, you know, without much adventure. But there's always that chance, and I'd say it's better than 50-50, that something goes sideways. There are those glowing multicolored traces that arc off the main path at crazy angles into the unknown. And this is where the good stuff happens. Adventure is when you show up for a 12-person relay, and there are only eight runners. Adventure is when you start throwing up at mile 75. Adventure is when you roll that ankle or crash your bike in the early miles. Adventure is when that storm blows in with its driving wind and hail. Adventure steps in and tears up your well-made plans. 
Adventure wipes the slate and resets the score. It strips you of your smug comfort and your middle-of-the-road expectations. But, my friends, adventure is not catastrophe. Adventure is not some evil, beady-eyed thug stepping out of a side alley to blacken your eyes and steal your money. No, my friends, adventure is an opportunity. Adventure strips away our silly human thoughts of predetermination and lets us draw on a deeper pool of resource and strength that we didn't know we had. Adventure, you see, leads to fulfillment. Adventure is where the epic lies. Adventure to the shores of new worlds, to the walls of Troy. Adventure is a tool to flush out the human spirit. We endurance athletes, we hardy few, we celebrate adventure. You are better than you think you are and can do more than you think you can. As Ken Clauber says, on with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. All right, let's talk about form series. This is my form series, chapter three. This is the third part in a series I'm doing on running form. So today we will look at how to use your form in practice, right? In practice. What does all this mean if we can't use it for something? So I'll start by telling a story. A couple weeks ago, I was pacing at the Conquer the Canyon half marathon, and I saw a typical example of how powerful form technique can be for the individual runner in a workout or a race. It was late in the race, you know, somewhere past the 10-mile point, and that's the point in a half marathon that is analogous to the 18-mile mark of a marathon, and that's where people start to fade in a half marathon. I was running a few yards behind Greg and the official, you know, the official pacer and his pace group, and I had dropped back because I was being a bad influence on the pace group. I'd get talking, they'd get talking, they'd forget what they were doing, and then we'd be going too fast. So I dropped back to run in the back and coach some of the trailing runners. One of the lead pack runners, Doug, started to drift back to me, and I could see from his form that he was starting to struggle. You can just see it, right? Remember I told you to watch people in races and at end races? You can see their form change. You can see it like throwing a switch. And I had been talking with Doug earlier, and he had been full of energy and smiling and happy and running well and confident. And now as he drifted to the back, he had all those hallmarks of a runner hitting the wall. His shoulders were slumped. He was hunched forward. He was breathing hard but shallow. And he was shuffling a bit, right, dragging his feet a little bit. More than the physical, you could almost smell the panic and the defeat he was experiencing as his form slumped and as he struggled. And of course, as he came into my space, I engaged him, you know, hey, Doug, how you doing? And he didn't answer, just shook his head, you know, looking at his feet. So I started coaching him, Doug, just stay with us, you'll be fine. And I bet All of you have seen this in races before. 
there is a physiological phenomena where your emotions are tied to your physiology. Your mental state is tangled with your physical state. More specifically, for our purposes here, your form has a direct connection to your emotions and your, and your ability to run, right, as a result. And as most of us know, your emotional state can determine the outcome as much as your physical state. Simply put, when your form breaks, your spirit breaks. But it goes both ways. That's the negative side of the equation. The positive side is that if you can fix your form, you can fuel your spirit. So against his protestations, I coached Doug to get his form back, to get his house in order for those last couple hard miles. Get those shoulders back. Straighten up. Lift your head. Push those hips forward. Nice, light, fast feet. Smile. Relax. Deep breaths. In through the nose. Out through the mouth. Inhaling strength, blowing out the weakness. And through the process, Doug relaxed. Now, I didn't see him finish, but he found me later in the melee of the finish area to thank me and tell me about his PR. Now, let's be honest. I didn't do anything. Doug did. But maybe my little bit of coaching changed his state and allowed him to help himself. Coaching him through that low point by cleaning up his physical and mental form, enabled him to find what was already in him. The bottom line, the moral of the story, so to speak, is that by having form practice as one of the tools in your kit, you can change your state when you need to and unlock the performance that is already in you. So let's break it down. What happens when you hit that low point and how can form practice help you get through it or out of it? So first is the physical. What happens when you get tired? Your body slumps. Your shoulders start to hunch forward. Your head droops. Your hands hang low. You bend forward at the waist. You start pushing, right? Your stride starts to collapse. Your foot strike rocks back on the heel. Your stride length scrunches and your cadence drops. Your breathing gets shallow and rapid. And let me ask you a question. Have you ever woken up the day after a horrible race? One of those ones where you did the death shuffle at the end and felt really sore. And you wonder, why am I so sore? I was barely moving in those last couple miles. Well, when you were training for that race, how many miles did you trade with that awful death shuffle collapse form? Not many or none at all, right? That's why you're so sore after that death shuffle. You never trained with that form and you're running the last three to six miles of the race with it. So of course you're going to have blisters and sore spots. So what happens mentally when you slump like this? Your physiology sends a message to your brain that all hope is lost and it's a downward reinforcing cycle. It's just a bad place to be. We've all been there. But you, dear runner, who have been practicing good form, you know what to do. You have this skill in your toolkit that you can use. You can use form to reverse this slump, to get through this slump. And the goal here is not to run faster. It's not a silver bullet. The goal is to relax and stop fighting yourself. You're in a low point. It happens to everyone. Recognize where you are. Reset and control what you can. Stop the panic thinking. Stop thinking ahead to the finish many miles away. 
put away your expectations and come back to where you are. Work with what you have. Push those hips forward, lift those shoulders, lift your head, straighten up, and relax. Fast, light feet. Smile. I don't know why people refuse to smile. It's not a Pollyanna positive thinking thing. It's a physiological response mechanism. When you smile, your body squirts happy chemicals into your system. It will change your mental and physical state. It will quiet the raging voices of doom in your head. So just smile. It's okay. And breathe. Stop that shallow slump breathing. Take big breaths. Expand that chest and diaphragm. In through the nose and blow it out through the mouth. Slow, deep, conscious breathing. If you can manage it, try to exhale one beat longer than your inhale. That's a meditation technique. But again, this isn't some hippy-dippy new age magic. This is physiological mechanism. Your breath is directly tied to your physical and mental state. By rationally managing your breathing, you can bring your machine back into balance, back into a normal state, and back under your control. Does this mean that you will magically not be tired? That somehow your legs will start bouncing again? No, probably not. But it allows you to manage the state you're in with the most efficiency. Relaxing always translates to better performances, no matter what level of an athlete you are. Your body has natural mechanisms to deal with and even to rise above this exhaustion. By reeling in your physical and mental state, you give these mechanisms a chance to kick in. You relax into the effort. I find myself using this technique all the time. I use this in races to back away from the edge without losing any time or speed. I use it all the time in my training runs where I'll find I'm just fighting the run for no good reason. And that's when you use your form practice to reset and relax. And now for today's featured interview. So Matt, <laughs> so last time we talked, I don't know what, three months ago, and you were just starting your uh, Ironman training. And yeah. you were uh, coming off a significant weight loss. You know, you're at one of those points in your life where you sort of got fed up and said, I'm going to, I'm going to do something different. So, you know, give us the, the 200 words on that, you know, that process, bring us up to speed so people remember where you were. And then we'll talk about where you got to, because where you got to was kind of exciting. So I was 350 pounds. I couldn't bend over. I couldn't do anything really without being out of breath. Started a gym program, lost a bunch of weight doing that, and then decided to sign up for an Ironman. That's when Coach Jeff Fine reached out and said if I needed anything, he helped me out. He started coaching me and lost some more weight. Just finally raced the Ironman race about, I don't know, what was it two weeks ago? Yeah. Interesting things in your journey was, you know, when you asked the coach at the gym for help with this Ironman, they basically wouldn't coach you because they thought you were crazy in the shape you were in to think about that, you know, they probably thought you'd hurt yourself or that you'd give up on them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure what his, uh, what his deal was, but nobody should ever tell anybody that they're not ready for a coach. And no matter what probably part of you, their journey, what they're, what they're doing. You should probably buy that guy a present. 
because uh, yeah, he right. helped you meet your goals, right? You're, you're right, he did. And then, uh, and then Jeff stepped in and and coached you up for uh, just out of spite. Um, I remember yep, watching. Pretty much. I remember watching. You know, we talked a couple of months ago. I was I've been following you on Facebook, and I remember seeing you trying to uh, train for the triathlon on your bicycle and not being physically able to get into the aero position for a while. Yeah, I bought that. I bought the speed concept and I've ridden it. I rode it quite a few times. And I think my longest ride was like a 65 mile ride. It was just painful. So I, I ended up getting rid of that bike. Yeah. I can remember training for triathlons and being a little bit heavy, not super heavy, but a little bit heavy. And it just being uncomfortable to get down to that arrow position. Cause you're basically smacking yourself in the belly with your knees. So one of the guys that, that helped me immensely is his name's Jason Remington. He, he, he's part owner of a, a new truck shop where I live and I actually help out there. So I get good deals. Oh, I buy my bike, but he's, He's fitted me since day one. We we worked on that speed concept forever, trying to get it to be comfortable. And I just wasn't there yet. I wasn't ready for that position. Yeah, I opted to sell but, that bike and buy a new bike. Right, but then you got a new bike, and did the new bike make all the difference for you in terms oh, of yeah. the? It's, it's so much more comfortable, and it's just as fast. So it's yeah, it's an aero road bike, is what it is. The only thing I don't have on is arrow bars. For Lake Placid, I don't think you really needed arrow bars, especially that day we had a couple weeks ago. The target race for you was Lake Placid. And after uh, a year at least of training, you know, big training for an Ironman, you got to do a lot of training. You're talking eight to ten hours a week. You had the race. Tell tell me about the race. How'd it go? (laughs) It didn't go as I planned it to go but it it kind of did because i finished i just didn't finish the time i thought i would finish which is fine for my first one i just finishing is is good enough so the swim you know i got in the water at like 657 i think it was and i swam just under two hours which is slower than i thought i've, I've swam the the course before and it was I think I did an hour and 45. So I actually swam slower. I think it was part of it was just me being a little conservative. I didn't want to, I didn't want to blow up and I didn't want to burn all my energy because I knew it was going to be a long day. I might've been conservative, I guess. I got out on, out of the water and got on the bike and that's, that's where I feel at home. Bike is my happy place. It was, uh, the first lap was a good lap, you know, it was a good lap and, Second lap was brutal. That's where uh, a lot of people DNF on that second lap. Um, Why is that? It got really hot and really windy. It's funny, this whole race, I remember bits and parts of it, but a lot of it I don't remember. The second, I mean, people told me it was hot. I, I do well in the heat. I don't have any issues working out or training or racing in the heat. And I train in the hills. It wins, so I don't have any problems with that either. I wasn't fast. I think I only averaged like 14 and a half miles an hour on my bike, but it was enough to get me to finish. But that's there's a climb from Wilmington back into Lake Placid, and that's where it's just a long 
not real steep, just really long climb, and the wind always comes down in your face and it's constantly pushing on you. So it's, it's just not easy. That's, that course is not easy at all. So you're two hours in the water. How many hours are you coming in on the bike? 30 minutes from the cutoff, so almost eight hours, 7.50 maybe. Five hours on the bike is what you're saying, right? Yeah. It's crazy because I've, I've trained in Lake Placid twice. I've done two laps up there during training camp, and it was all right. It wasn't the best. I kind of experimented with different things, and I blew up and bonked and did all kinds of crazy stuff in training camp. But, and then I went back up a few weeks later. I, I rode one loop. I just stuck to a plan, and the plan worked, and I, I was done in like my first 56 miles in three hours and 15 minutes. I technically should have finished in six and a half hours, seven hours. Typically in races, if as long as you don't do something stupid, you beat your training times just from the energy yeah. of the race, right? So you're out on the bike. Do you think it was the heat that uh, knocked you back or yeah. just, so, just well, the stress of being out there? So the second loop of my swim, my legs started cramping. I got out of the water and on my bike, and I was doing all right for most of my first loop, but my legs just, my legs pretty much cramped from the second loop of the swim all the way to the finish. I don't know, 15, 16 hours, 16 hours, my legs were cramped. I couldn't, I couldn't find, I couldn't do anything to get rid of them. I tried everything. I, I mean, I tried everything to get rid of the cramps. I couldn't, I couldn't shake them. What do you guys think it was? What did Jeff think it was? I mean, that's typically nutrition, right? So what were you taking on course, Matt? So I, I used F2C, I used two bottles of glycodurance, 400 calorie bottles, and then I used, I had two bottles of just water for my bike ride. And that seemed to work, and I had electrodurance, you know, salt in my bottles. But, it, you know, the second lap, it just, it just wasn't working. It wasn't lack of energy, just cramps. So I don't know if I had too much salt, not enough salt. You know, I just—I have no idea. The uh, how were your um, how were your fingers? Were your fingers swollen? They were a little swollen, and I'm glad. You know, my I gave my wife my wedding ring because I don't swim with it on because you know I've lost so much weight. I'm afraid it's just gonna fall off in the water. And I was gonna grab it from her, and I just completely forgot. And half the time, I didn't even see my family on the course. I saw them a few times, but I was so focused and just tunnel vision my whole course almost. I think would have put that ring on my fingers would have swollen and not at all yeah sometimes that's a indicator of um, where your electrolytes and your salts are you know but it's tough because a lot of the symptoms can point to diametrically different things you know so you could have the same symptom for too much salt versus not enough salt so so you must have really suffered in the marathon then if you were oh cramping from the second <laughs> from the swim in the marathon was was just ridiculous I got off my bike and I got into transition as did all the stuff I need to do. And the volunteers are, are, are really good up there. They're, I mean, I had a guy in my, in T1 put my heart rate monitor on for me. I couldn't, I was just so frantic that I couldn't, I couldn't figure it out. He put it on for me that, uh, you know, I'm soaking wet and sweaty and nasty and, but anyways, I, I got out on the run, and that's where I saw my family just as I come out of the, the transition tent. So I ran 
probably pretty much out of town. It's mostly downhill, out of town. And then that was it, man. I just started walking. And I met up with a an older gentleman. He had a knee brace on and walking with a younger girl. And she had a like a leg brace on. She, she had a, a pulled hamstring. And I think he was in his 70s. And they were walking. And according to them, if we kept the pace up, that they were keeping, they would finish. So I'm like, well, I'll just speed walk with you guys. And they dropped Yeah, so, so, I could, yeah, so I could keep up. They dropped you? You couldn't keep up? Yeah. No. Where were the cramps you were having? Were they in your in your quads or in your calves? My quads and my calves. And every once in a while, my hamstrings. Yeah. It was not pretty. It was, it was painful. And you know, during the during training, you know, I can get a really emotional when I get on my bike or when I'm running by myself, and I just start thinking. You get that runner's high. And it's weird. I can always get a runner's high when I'm when I'm training out running or you know just by myself, just by smiling or something like that, or just a thought in my head. And uh, that whole marathon, I could not. It doesn't didn't matter whether I smiled, who I thought of. Nothing. Nothing brought me out of that darkness. Honestly, I don't know how I kept going. I don't know how I finished that race. Well, there must have been some points where you were, you know, you're saying, that's it, I'm giving up, but you didn't. Well, I I would never give up, but the whole second lap, I thought I had, I thought I was doing all right the first lap. The whole second lap, lap all I could think of is, I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to, I'm going to DNF. I'm going to have to explain to all these people that follow me that I'm not going to finish. And I just thought, the heck with it. If I don't finish, I'm just going to bury my head in the sand and delete all my social media and just be done with it. Yeah. But then, uh, <laughs> and, you, and, you know, there's a lot of people out there that are cheering, cheering me on and stuff. And I don't remember seeing a lot of them. I don't remember giving the high fives. It's like a big blur. But then mile, so there's a, a hill that climbs back into Lake Placid. Off, just off on the corner of River Road down by the ski jumps. And I think it's... I don't know, about six miles from, from the finish. I've come walking up, and it's, like, pitch black outside. And I hear, uh, Matt Shore, is that you? I'm like, oh, crap. Like, somebody <laughs> wants to talk to me, you know what I mean? I'm like, I'm just not in the mood to talk to somebody who follows me on Facebook. I'm in a, in a bad place. And it was Sheena Holder from Daily Fitbook. And she's, a, she's on our team. She told me, she's like, well, I drove down from from Plattsburgh, I've been following you, and I did, I'm worried that you weren't going to finish, so I came down. And uh, she picked me up right there at the corner and pretty much walked me and somewhat ran all the way back to the finish. And, kept me and going. what was that, with, a, with about 10K to go? Yeah, somewhere's in there, yeah. And, uh, well, that's, a, that's the perfect place. If you're going to have a... A uh, rescuing angel, that's the perfect place with 10K to go. Because that's about I mean, as low it, as it gets. Honestly, if, if she didn't show up there, I don't I don't think I would have finished. I don't know if I would have been able to push hard enough. I, you know, I just don't know. That second lap of that race, some point during that, somebody gave me a ham sandwich, and I ate this ham sandwich, and I have no <laughs> idea. I don't, I don't remember doing it. I mean, <laughs> you were deep. It got... Uh, yeah, I was just done. I I was walking down River Road. I actually closed my eyes, and 
I might, I don't know. I, I might have fallen asleep while I was walking. You ended up beating the cutoff by six minutes is the punchline, right? Yep. Yep. So what's, what's the cutoff? 17 hours. So I think my finish time 17 was 16. I think I, I walked in the finish. Or, well, I ran down the shoot, but I, I ran down and finished at like 15, <laughs> one according to their clock or something like that. And then, you know, I started three minutes early. So I had six minutes to play with. That's a was, long uh, day. That was a very long day. Long and day in July. It was awesome. Though. I mean, the first lap of the bike, is that's when everybody's happiest, I think. That's when you can talk to people and have fun. After that, it's just a grind. But, you know, it's, right. it's one of those things during training, you're used to grinding. And I think part of the reason I finished is because I'm comfortable with being uncomfortable. You know, yep. if, you're, if you're not comfortable with that, then you're not going to finish. You know, I mean, yep. you just got to keep keep going forward. I mean, I could sit here and tell you all day long that, oh, it's all a mental game and you just got to dig deep for motivation. And There was no motivation. I I didn't have the energy to think of anything. Yeah, I don't remember good. thinking, I can't stop. I don't remember thinking, well, I, I'll rely on memories of my older brother and, or I'll think of my kids. I didn't think of any of that stuff. All that stuff is great when I, when you're training, and if you can use it during your race, great. But I was I just wasn't in a place to. That was energy spent. It sounds like when you get done, you almost weren't celebrating because you were mad at yourself for being slow. No, I I wasn't <laughs> I wasn't mad for being slow at all. I I was extremely happy that I that I finished. I thought I'd finish a lot sooner. But, you know, I, I weighed in at 280 pounds. Yeah, I was probably one of the biggest guys, if not the biggest, out there. I did it. So I was extremely happy. Yeah, and it's funny, I talked, to, I talked to Jeff the, the next day, and he's like, dude, you don't even sound happy. I'm like, I'm just tired. <laughs> I'm like, I'm <laughs> happy. I'm just, I'm just tired. Coming down that finish shoot, I remember seeing uh, a local girl, that follows me and I'm friends with on Facebook and stuff. I, I saw her. She she also came down. She said she about halfway back in the class and she put her sneakers on and come down. She was afraid I wasn't going to finish. And then uh, I saw her coming around the corner. And then it, I had all kinds of friends there. My family was all there. I didn't see any of them coming down the finishing shoot. The only thing I saw was Mike Riley and his hand up. So I gave him a high five, and I gave a, another friend of mine a fist bump at the very end. And Did I you hear him I call your I name? Him. I didn't hear him call my name, nope. I was looking for it on uh, you know, YouTube and stuff, and I, I haven't found it yet. But it's, it's funny, the, that finishing shoot, because it's loud as it is when I came in. And the one thing I remember is when I hit that red carpet, I put my arms up, and those people just friggin' exploded. I mean, it just got like <laughs> 10 times louder than it was, which is probably part of the reason I didn't hear him say my name and stuff. But, you know, hearing him call my name out is kind of cool, but it doesn't, I'm not disappointed that I did hear him. So the, what's your, what's your next goal, right? Cause the hard part about these things that are monumental like this is you tend to have an emotional uh, dive afterwards. It's almost sort of yeah. like a postpartum thing. Um, and exactly. it's hard, you know, it's hard what to, I went through. 
this what now sort of thing, right? And it's very difficult because you've poured yourself, your your core emotional self into this thing for so long. Then when it's over, you're kind of lost, right? You, you, you're without a compass. So, exactly. you know, typically people solve that by moving on to the next thing, you know, the next event. So what's your, um, what's your strategy here? What are you doing next? So that's, that's exactly what I did. It took me about a week. I was pretty depressed afterwards, just like Christmas morning, you know, for a little kid. You know, you, you look forward to it for a few months, and then it's there and it's gone. But I'm, I've, uh, I've re-signed up, so I'm doing I am the Ironman up in Lake Placid again for next year, 2020. My goal is to be down to, I want to be at 180, so I need to lose 100 pounds. I mean, ultimately, I'd like to be top 100 in my age group. I don't know if that's possible. It could be, it very well could be if I get light enough. If I can go up to Lake Placid next year and swim, I'm perfectly happy swimming a 200 or two-hour swim. That's fine. I don't even care. And then crush the bike so I can enjoy the the run and remember everything. <laughs> that's what I want next year. Yeah, you're actually in a great position because you, if you think about it, you sandbag the race, right? So you'll easily take, you know, especially if you lose the weight. And, again, it's not about weight loss. It's about being healthy, right? So if you go into it healthy, you're going to automatically take, you know, 20, 30 minutes off. And you're in the part, if you keep this up, right, you're in the part of the journey where every race you run is going to be faster than the last race, right? Yeah. And that's that's pretty addictive, uh, get all that positive feedback. And, you know, the age you are, you can probably do that for another 15, 20 years and become, yeah. you know, very, very competitive, right, for whatever your yeah. limit is, right? So that's the journey you're looking at. The only, uh, you know, the the only setback is at some point you're going to you're going to try so hard you're going to injure yourself, right? So it's a good thing you have a coach. And that typically happens, you know, in the second or the third training cycle. You do too much of something. That's the one thing I was, I was really worried about. I, mean, I think I could... I could figure out how to train by myself for two weeks. I've, I've had no structure, you know, I've just, I've had no workouts emailed to me. I've, I've, you know, I've just been kind of in limbo. And right. I'm not, I don't work well like that. Allows you to take your big brain out of it and just do the workouts. Yeah. You don't have to think yeah. about them. You just do the workouts. Right. But when you're coaching yourself, yeah. then you got an additional thought where you go, is it the right workout? Um, am I no. doing the right thing? So it, it turns on the wrong part of your brain for getting those workouts done. Well, that's what uh, one of the, you know, the Friday afterwards, I was finally feeling good. So I went on a bike ride. And I, I probably, I know I went too far. I went 35 miles. And I was just, I was completely spent. Because I, I didn't have any idea how to, how to recover. I knew I had to rest. I didn't think I had to rest for two weeks which I've pretty much done. I've ridden my bike a few times, but that's it. I haven't ran or swam in two weeks. You know, a lot of people will say they'll shut down for a month or so after a big event like that. Um, I I'm a, I believe more in active recovery, so just don't yeah. work out hard, right? Just keep the legs moving, yeah. keep the body moving, just to keep the blood flowing. And you're in such good shape, you, you're not going to hurt yourself by going out and running five miles or swimming 400 meters, right? 
just to get the blood moving. And you're in such good shape that you can do that at a pace that won't even raise your heart rate. So, and it's really good for your, really good for your head to be at it too. So I, I always kind of disagreed with the people who would just shut down for a month. So pretty much the first week I couldn't walk right for probably three days. Yeah. That Wednesday, I finally started feeling good again. My wife had to help me with my putting my shorts on and stuff. I couldn't even <laughs> move my legs. I mean, it was just job well done. It was done. like I was three hundred fifty pounds, three hundred fifty pounds again. You know, I couldn't yeah. move, but it was all due to because yeah. of workout. But that was the, the best thing I've ever done. I mean, it was awesome. You're you're being a positive influence on your kids too. So that's another reason you got to keep okay. it up, right? Is yeah. your is your being a positive influence on the rest of the world? So that. You know, some responsibility, but it also is a reward in itself. You know, with the, with the Ironman, you know, really for Lake Placid, you don't really start need to start training until January, you know, the the beginning of the new year. It's like a six-month training cycle. Um, yep. So you got a whole other season now where if you wanted to do something, do something different, take some time off, you could do yep. that for the next six months. You know, do something different in terms of cross training or weightlifting or whatever, right? So you know, or have do some do some fun races, do some sprints, you know, that sort of thing. I actually, I actually have a sprint coming up next week. I call it my A race. It was my first ever triathlon. It's the Casanova Sprint Triathlon, and it took me. I was 315 pounds when I did it. I think it was two hours and eight minutes it took me to do that. So I'm really excited to see how I do in that that race next week. And then I'm also doing the the 70.3 in Lake Placid in September, but I'm doing it as a relay. So I'm just I'm riding yeah. just I'm ride the bike. I'm not running or swimming. So uh, I'm just going to follow my coach's plan and lose weight and do whatever he wants. I think we're going to concentrate on the bike a lot. I'd like to average 18 miles an hour. At Lake Placid next year, that would give me enough time. And I'm still a really big guy, but I can I can average some pretty high speeds. So it's you know. yeah, and a, and a lot of the the Ironmen they they take that you know that the six months the sort of October, November, December they do something that's sort of refreshing. You know, it's not hard training, yeah. and then they they yeah. jump on this bike in January and start putting the grind it start grinding. Right. So I'll take, move you towards the exit here, Matt. Congratulations on this. You know, I hopefully you keep it going because now you're in the point where you get to sort of harvest all the hard work you did. So what are the top three things you learned from this now that you got through the other side? Definitely hard work pays off. Training for Ironman is it's ridiculously hard. You got to enjoy it. If, if you don't enjoy it, then there's no sense in doing it. I don't know. I've, I've like rediscovered myself. It's like therapy for me, doing these races and training, and you know, ultimately, it's so I could be around for my family. Honestly, if it wasn't, if I didn't have the wife I have, I I wouldn't have been able to do it either. I mean, she sacrifices so much. So, you know, when I'm off training on a Saturday for six hours, and I, I train every night. I mean, she takes care of all three kids. She does everything. She she takes it care of everything for me and I don't have to worry about anything so if it wasn't for her I, I don't think I'd be able to do it so I give her the 90% of the credit and I give coach you know 5% and I'll give myself 5% but 
she's the she's the driving force behind me. Yeah, it's good to have the support. It's hard to do yeah. it if you don't have the support. You're gonna get the tattoo, um, Matt. So it's funny because I had a uh, an appointment to get the tattoo on Monday, but I couldn't make the t- make the appointment. So now it's it's pushed out, and I just dropped eight hundred dollars on a uh, another Ironman race. So yeah, you know, I if if I had a money tree, I'd get the tattoo, but I just don't have the money. You know, I yeah. if I had the money, I'd pay, I'd pay coach to coach me. I'd get the tattoo and I'd sign up for another race. One of the other things you learn through these sort of hard things is that, uh, you know, it spills over into your normal life as too. So maybe uh, things will, you'll, you'll run into some miracles on that side as well. It's, it's ridiculous how many people I know now and the support I get. And it's awesome. I, I, I love it. Yeah. I absolutely love it. Whole new life. Yeah. Whole new life. So, All right, man. I'll amazing. let you go. Thank, thanks, thanks for catching up. All right, man. That's Sounds amazing good. what you what you've been able to, to accomplish. I can't wait to see what brings next year. I, I'm I'm fired up about next year too. I can't wait. You yeah, know, you you just you just you just scratch the surface on this journey. So the next few years are going to be fun for you. Yeah, well, going to be a blast. All right. Good luck. All right. Thanks, Chris. Yep. See ya. Yep. Bye. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. Some thoughts on Seneca's letters. So I have Seneca's letters on my Kindle, and I dip in and out of it. It's really not a narrative. There's no reason to read it linearly. You just have it, and when you have nothing else to read, you go read a chapter of Seneca. It's a little dense, but it's got a few nuggets in it, and it's fascinating. Here we have a collection of a guy sending letters to a younger man. On the surface, this is fascinating in the sheer mundane nature of the interaction. The relationship between Seneca and his young friend Lucilius is one of a mentor talking to his mentee, but more like an older uncle sharing advice with a nephew. And we only have Seneca's side of the conversation. We don't know what Lucilius was thinking. We don't know if he even wanted this advice. In some of the more scolding letters, we get the impression that he doesn't always measure up to Seneca's expectations. They are in two different places in their lives, two different seasons. Seneca is essentially a retired rich guy. Lucilius is closer to that mid-career, that hurly-burly career climbing of the Roman state. And you can imagine this interaction as the first century equivalent of emails or texts. You have to understand the way Roman culture worked. It was a series of client-patron relationships. Nobody was really their own man. They all owed their position to alliances with people or factions or tribes or families higher up in the hierarchy. Lucilius was a client of Seneca. The relationship with Seneca could help him climb the ladder. And what I love about the letters is that they could be from today. If you remove or replace the archaic references, they they are us. They were us. They are us. Nothing has changed. We sit here in our new Rome, still trying to figure out what it all means, still having to resist buying a shiny car 
still being embarrassed to wear out-of-date clothes, still working very hard to be better people. Now, if it were only that, a collection of familiar letters from 2,000 years ago, it would be fascinating on its own. But it's more than that. Seneca, besides being a retired rich guy, is also a Stoic philosopher. And he would not have called himself a philosopher because the Sophists were another school of thought that the Stoics dismissed as a degenerate form of reasoning. But I digress. When we refer to Stoicism today, we get a picture of people purposely suffering, right? Purposely holding out for lost causes. Purposely leaning into the pain and effort because this is where the truth is. And we see them in our modern popular opinion as hard and humorless people. But there was more to what they were preaching than self-sacrifice. Self-sacrifice was part of their toolkit, what they were really trying to do was find truth and reason and virtue. They realized that the jewelry and the furnishings of life many times got in the way of that truth and reason and virtue. And they were trying to strip that away. They were trying to strip away what, that, what wasn't necessary to get to the good stuff. The Stoics were also trying to figure out how to live a life that was of service to others. That's a good thing, right? Because that's a valuable virtuous life, a worthy life, and they were trying to figure out how to be satisfied with what they had and live in the now. Huh? They were working to fix that bubbling gray mass inside their skulls so that they could add value to the world. So nothing has changed. I find that comforting and terrifying. Comforting because the human experience is universal, and these things that trouble us are universal things that should trouble us across space and time. And it's terrifying because you would think we might have come up with some answers by now. The answer that the Stoics came up with is practice, to practice a valuable, virtuous life, to, to never get it right, but to leave your mark, lead your life, trying, striving, and practicing. They had no silver bullets. They just knew sort of which direction to run in, like we should too. Make no mistake, Seneca and his ilk were the one percenters of their time. These were idle rich guys. He tells stories of how he's quite proud of himself for only taking a couple slaves with him and driving in an old cart to picnic with a friend. I mean, that's the kind of smug self-importance that would get you beat up on Twitter. He also realizes that if some friends from his well-to-do set were to pass him riding in this rough cart on the road, he would be embarrassed in spite of himself, in spite of knowing that what he was doing was the right or the valuable or the virtuous thing to do. He knew his mind was still wired to betray his own stoicism. Reading Seneca's letters is calming. It's calming to me. It reinforces the fact that all we really can do is accept what we have and then work towards something better. It tells me that every day is a new day, a gift, a chance to put the polished armor back on and lean into life, to try to be better, to try to live up to the gift that we've been given by God with a capital G or the gods, if you choose. I have often said that there is no inherent value in stoically suffering, whether in a race or life, but I think that suffering does have value. Don't 
try to just suffer. Don't drink suffering like wine. But when it comes, and in this life it comes, embrace it and learn from it. Lean in. That's the suffering that reveals our core. Because at the end here, what you realize reading Seneca, similar to my articles, Seneca is not writing letters for Lucilius. He's writing them for himself. And he's hoping that in the process, they are of service to someone else. Seneca spends most of his time talking about whether having money is evil and the relationship between being rich and having virtue, whether or not they can be reconciled, which should tell you he was worried about his own soul. A bit ironic, I think. I suppose that's why Stoicism appeals so much today to the Silicon Valley nouveau riche. There are no silver bullets in Seneca's letters, but there are some silver nuggets. There are some interesting ideas. There are some timeless threads of cogitation. So you should get a copy, dip into it once in a while. I think he'd be surprised that we're still reading them 2,000 years later, still trying to figure it out. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Well, my friends, you fixed your form and fixed your sights on the new horizon which, by the way, was the name of a NASA probe that made a flyby of poor old demoted king of the Kuiper Belt, but no longer a planet Pluto. And then, even more astoundingly cool, Ultima Thule, which turned out to be two big chunks of accreted dust bunnies from the birth of the solar system four billion years ago, stuck together. To the end of the Run Run Live podcast, episode 4-414, which is in some small way, astounding in itself. For me, the weirdness that is my life continues. I try not to struggle against the current so much. I try to choose, as much as I can, the rocks to bump against along the way. I will be pacing Eric this weekend at Leadville. And don't anyone tell him, but I'm terrified. My training has been shite. See, it's not really bad language if I use that non-U.S. dialect. I've still got that damn rattle in my lungs from whatever that airplane cold was. I'm thinking it might be consumption or maybe grip or apoplexy, but I'm no doctor. And I have been listening to a lot of medieval histories recently. And I have the great personal responsibility to guide a dear friend through 38 miles of dusty Colorado trail at night over a pass that tops out at 12,600 feet. I may die. But I would rather die than not support a friend who needs me. People often overestimate my ability, but thankfully they also underestimate my insanity, so it balances out. Assuming I survive this adventure, I'm actually registered for a series of races that I'm also not prepared for. Screw it, why change my approach now and do the smart thing? That might work, but it's boring, right? It's a, it's a bad story. It's a bad narrative doing the right thing. I'm going to call Leadville a training run, a nice long hike in the woods, good for building strength and base aerobic fitness, right? Yeah. Then in a couple weeks, I'm going to run the Wapak Trail Race, and that's another nice strength builder, which is stupid because a week after that, I'm signed up for a marathon to see if I can requalify for Boston before registration closes. You never know. It's happened before. Remember that time I rolled out of that six-hour Spartan race in 2017 and requalified at Portland? 
or when I turned my training from the Olympic try over the summer into a qualifier at Bay State in 2018, it happens. I have a history of doing better when I'm not focused. (laughs) I'm also signed up for the Bay State Marathon in October, which would give me six to seven weeks of training to make another good effort, good show. I still have some tendonitis in my ass. My knee is still crunchy from crashing in June. and uh, But the machete injury, that healed fully, so I have, I have that going for me. Maybe the $1,000 emergency room visit was worth it. Although my wife is of the opinion that I should have gone to the ready clinic or stitched it up myself. And I'm, I may be patient zero for some new form of zombie plague that starts as a juicy night cough you can't shake. So everything is status quo over here at the Run Run Live headquarters. And honestly, I'm happy to be alive. But I can hear you scream, Chris, no one cares a whit about your constant stream of whining about running. What about the puppy? Yeah, what about the puppy? As we speak, Ollie, the Border Collie, is what, 10, 11 weeks old? And he's growing like a weed? And he bites everything and everybody with those pointy little teeth? If it exists, it goes in his mouth. Uh, He's mostly sleeping through the night in his crate, but usually I sleep on the couch in the living room, in the sort of in the vicinity, and that calms him down. And he's a random poop and pee machine, but we're working on that. He's teaching us patience. I've realized how much older I am since the last time I had a puppy or a baby in the house. You know, they have two speeds, right? All a head full and sleep. And he likes to destroy Yvonne's perennials. He likes to chew on rocks. He likes to steal my socks. The other day I walked out to my garden with him. I picked a pile of produce, tomatoes, peppers, squash, and cucumbers. He stole one of my cucumbers and gleefully played keep away with me uh, as I grumbled and fumed and chased. And he capered away with a sparkle in his eye. I ended up freezing that cucumber so we could use it as a chew toy. He's probably a month ahead of where Buddy was at this age. Buddy was the runt of the litter, a sad little dog that grew into his wonder. Ollie is the is uh, the class clown, full of energy, bravado, and clever impishness. But does he run? Yes, he does. He's traversed the mileish trail with me at a trot a couple times now. He's not quite sure what we're doing or why we're doing it, but he hangs with me and has plenty of juice left over at the end. At the end of the day, I'm happy to have this warm little ball of fur weaving around my legs and trying to knock me down so he can bite my face. I mean, who doesn't need that in their life? I need that. I miss that. And I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die so ned he laughed so hard it made him cry hey come here hold on a second i gotta corral my dog It's okay. It's okay. We've got another dog out here. He's too young to be meeting new dogs. He doesn't have his uh, 
medical authority to meet other dogs. 